This morning we are wrapping up our series in the multicultural character of the kingdom of God by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. In this passage, Paul has been describing throughout the book of Corinthians his advice and, de- and declaring his advice and counsel to the church in Corinth that has been dealing with many different conflicts. And in the heart of it, he gives this summary about his calling and our calling as followers of Jesus. Follow along with me as I read. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray for his blessing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would send your spirit and open us, our hearts, our souls, our minds to the truth of your word, that we would leave here changed people, that we would leave here in awe of the reconciliation that you have purchased before us, and Lord, that you would work in us, that our practice in life would match the message that we proclaim. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we as a nation have been living in the midst of the post-election reality of the conversations that occur every four years about the need to bury the hatchet. Apparently, Obama and Trump did that a week or two ago. All issues have been resolved and worked over. Factions within the Republican Party have begun to be reconciled as Donald Trump and Mitt Romney make their move to reconcile with one another. Continue calls for unity across our country, reconciliation of different, fo- different forms in the midst of our nation, and everything is just going to be united back together. The tension in our country, as it has percolated over the last several weeks, has certainly emboldened certain forms of racism and expressions of racism in our nation. And as you well know, racial tension in America is not new. Nor is division by race something that is unique. You consider the genocides that occur around the globe and have, cur- have occurred in recent years. From the Rwandan genocide where the Hutus and the Tutsis were slaughtering one another. The Bosnian and Serbian conflict as two different races were utterly massacring one another. And then you go back to the Holocaust, the Russian gulags. What's happening in China, Cambodia, under Pol Pot, across different tribal groups in Africa, where all of this division, murder, slaughtering occurring on the basis of one race eradicating another race. 
And yet in America at this time, this day, we find ourselves in the midst of this national call for unity and this national call for reconciliation and moving forward. There's different ways that the secular environment tries to bring about reconciliation. There's the call for there needs to be racial reconciliation because it's better for everybody if everybody just gets along. Why can't we all just get along? If everybody gets along, it's better for everybody. Well, that idea, that motivation, that rationale works as long as it is better. And if the appeal to the motivation is self-interest, the idea that it's better for everybody if everybody gets along works until it is no longer better for you for everyone to get along. And that is what happens with the genocides across the globe, that there is a decision that it is better that if you don't get along, but you just eradicate those who would be opposed to you. Other people say, well, I want to treat other people the way that I would want to be treated. And people hold to that statement until there is risk, until they are threatened, and the things that they value that they're threatened, and then the tune changes. We live in a world of people who are not reconciled to God. And in not being reconciled to God, there is no basis for reconciliation to one another, for all secular motives for racial reconciliation devolves to either personal or economic advancement. But the Word of God gives a different picture. And yet, it is true that the Word of God, in the Word of God, it does not promote racial reconciliation for the sake of racial reconciliation. In the Word of God, racial reconciliation is not the end goal. Though, yes, Christians are called to promote the common good. They're called to be advocates for the voiceless, for the fatherless, for the widow, for the foreigner in their midst. Rather, the biblical picture is this, is that races are to be reconciled as a necessary result of obedience to the Word of God. As a necessary result of people having relationships with God and in obedience to Jesus Christ, as that turns as an outworking of reconciliation with God, it turns into reconciliation with others. Why? Because as Paul shows us here in this passage, as a Christian, you have been given a new life. And because you have a new life, you've been given a new vision in the way that you see this world. And with your new vision, you have been appointed to a new position. Let's take a look at these things. In Christ Jesus, you've been given new life. Verse 21 is one of the most succinct statements in all of Scripture, articulating what Jesus Christ has done. It says this, For our sake, he made him, God made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is, God sent Jesus Christ into this world so that he would, as Paul says here, to be sin, meaning that he would take our sin, our breaking of God's law, our debt, our ugliness, our shame, our guilt, and that they would be nailed to the cross in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, three days later, rose from the grave. Why? To purchase a place in heaven for us. And so that the righteousness of Christ, everything good, beautiful, and excellent about him, will be credited to those who believe and given to those who believe. This great act of reconciliation is all the more remarkable when you consider who it is that God purchased this reconciliation for. Verse 19 tells us, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Trespasses are known, 
is that you knowingly violate God's law. You break God's law, you knowingly violate God's law, you transgress God's law, you trespass, and you break God's law. And even though we are lawbreakers for the things that we have done in our lives and the good things that we have failed to do, even though we are lawbreakers, enemies of God, God purchases this reconciliation on our behalf. Verse 21 makes clear in this very succinct summary of the gospel of the good news of Jesus that there are actually two transactions that occur in what Jesus Christ did in giving us new life. Most Christians, certainly most evangelical Christians, only focus on one half of it. And the two halves that he focuses on here is what Christ takes away from us and what Jesus Christ gives to us. So here they go. On the one hand, what is taken from us is that Jesus Christ becomes sin for us. However, you are not left as a blank slate. Much better, the righteousness of God is given to you and credited to your account. Not only are you declared innocent that there is no fault on your behalf, but also that the righteousness, the rightness of Christ is put upon you, that your guilt and shame has been removed. But not only that, also, the beauty and dignity of Christ is put upon you. Forgiveness is good. The righteousness of Christ is better. It's not simply that your debt has been forgiven. You are not left broke. But the riches of Christ have been credited to you. Not simply that in Christ Jesus you are pardoned, which means it is declared that you have no fault. But in Christ Jesus... Your status is one of perfection, that there is no aspect of you in your status before God that is lacking. And so Jesus Christ stands in our place as our substitute, as our punishment bearer who bears the punishment on our behalf. But also, Jesus stands in our place as our law keeper, the one who did everything that we should have done but did not do. Jesus Christ not only died our death as a break for the breaking of God's law, but also he lived the life that we should live. And both of these things, our unrighteousness taken away, the righteousness of Christ given to us. Not only are we no longer enemies of God, it's just not that there's a, it's not simply that there is a peace accord, but in Christ Jesus, it is not simply that you are no longer enemies, but you have been adopted as a son. And in ancient terminology, why that matters is that daughters are adopted as a son through Jesus Christ. is because sons receive a full inheritance. The full inheritance of a firstborn son adopted into the family of God. You are not an enemy, but an adopted son. Both halves of these things. This is the grace of God. It is his grace that is there offered to each and every one of us. And there is a choice before you to accept it or reject it. And if you are here this morning and you've been investigating Christianity and you've been trying to figure these things out, what you believe, trying to make sense of this, I would join wholeheartedly with the words of Paul. I implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For there is no reconciliation apart from him. There is no way for your guilt and, sh and shame to be removed apart from Jesus Christ. There is no way for the beauty, the righteousness, and the goodness of Jesus Christ to be credited to you, given to you, apart from Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to him. 
turn and put your faith and trust in what Christ has done so that you too would have this new life. And for those of you here today who are believers in Jesus Christ, I would particularly urge you to live out the new life, not simply what is taken away, but to live in the reality of what has been given to you. To live in the righteousness and beauty and the riches of Christ that have been given to you. You are not left broke, but are called with the new life that Christ has given you to live in what Christ has done. In Christ Jesus, you have new life. Necessarily, then, is that because of the new life that you have in Christ, that also gives you a new vision for the way that you view the world and interact with people. Paul says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't look at anyone according to the flesh. There are vision towards them. What we see, we no longer see people according to the flesh. What does that mean? Is that we don't view people, Paul says, according to worldly standards, worldly values, as if one's present physical life is all that matter matters. Paul says that he himself used to regard Jesus Christ that way. He said, you know, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What is Paul saying? Saying Paul is, is acknowledging that he re- used to regard Jesus Christ as one who was crucified, meaning that he was a heretic who had been condemned by God. Paul says, I don't do that anymore. Paul also used to regard himself according to the flesh, which he does no longer. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, For we put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for the confidence in the flesh also. Why? Circumcised on the eighth day. He said, I grew up in a church-going family of the people of Israel. I was a part of the chosen race. I had the ethnic privilege of the tribe of Benjamin. I was of the right family. I was of the right household. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. He had the best education in the land. And his his life was consistent with the practices that he believed. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, there was no one more zealous than the Apostle Paul. He showed up when the doors opened. He was the first to register for the chili cook-off when the church would have one. He was the first to be involved in the various activities and life of the church. He wasn't afraid to tell the truth of God to the people before him. But Paul says, all of this is rubbish. To find your worth and value in your status, in your race, in your family, in your education, in your religious zealousness, in your religious practices, in your parenting, he says, we no longer review anyone according to the flesh. Because in Christ, you have a new life, and that new life has given you a new vision. If you are in Christ, we too must have a new vision. We too have a new vision and must practice a new vision to not view anyone according to the flesh. What does that mean? It means that you too don't regard or value people on the basis of worldly values, such as on the basis of race or position or money or their rank or how religious they are. And I imagine everybody here would hear that and say, yes. Amen. We are not to treat people differently. Let me give you an example, I think, of the way that the majority culture in this area, um, with that desire, has caused that to backfire. Um, It's been interesting in the conversations that have occurred during this series. 
You know, one of the things that white people oftentimes say is they'll say something like this when it comes to someone of a different race. They say, well, I, I don't see color. I don't see color. I don't see color. I've had a number of friends with different colors say to me, what do white people mean when they say they don't see color? I mean, I see color. Why, why don't they see color? Is something wrong with their eyes? <laughs> and I think in the best possible term, when people say, I don't see color, they say, well, I'm not favoring anybody. I'm not going to discriminate against anybody. And they say, why do you do it? Well, one, not only is it right for me to not show favoritism or discrimination, but yeah, I, uh, you know, there's also this background threat of having an EOO complaint filed against me, and I certainly don't want that. So I don't, I don't see color. I'm not going to treat everyone differently. And, you know, it's a desire I'm not going to discriminate. Some of the people who have different complexions, their experience of that, I said, you know, ask them, what is your experience of it when white people say, I don't see color? They say, they say well, I, I, I don't get that. And it makes me feel like they don't see me. Like if a white person says, I don't see color, and it makes me feel like I'm, they're saying, like, I'm like, what, you don't, you don't see me? Like, do you, do you think that we're exactly the same? Like, do you not acknowledge who I am as a, as a person? Here's another example. It has been for, you know, in this cultural environment, it has been deeply ingrained I think across our society, but particularly deeply ingrained in, in the professional culture, certainly within the white professional culture, that you do not treat anybody differently. Don't treat anybody differently. You need to acknowledge that to say, I'm not going to treat anybody differently, that is a culturally embodied statement means if I am not going to treat anyone differently, means that I am going to treat people the way that I treat people. Which is, I as a white male, I'm going to treat people, I'm going to treat all people the way that white men treat people. That interaction with other people is a culturally embodied action and a culturally embodied statement. Let me continue this one a little bit further. You know, as particularly for um, educate, I think this is a connected with education, but certainly uh, for white people, for upper middle class white people, there is, there is a very strong value for respect for space and respect for silence. And so the way that we interact in most groups, the way that white people interact with most groups, if you're in a group setting, it's understood that if you have something to say, say it. If you don't have something to say, don't say it. And don't call me out. Don't call me out. Don't ask me to speak. If I want to speak, I'll speak. If I don't want to speak, I'm not going to speak. And so accordingly, when white people are like, I'm not going to treat anybody differently. If anyone wants to speak, they can speak. If anyone doesn't want to speak, they, they don't have to speak. What many what people and brothers and sisters of different ethnicities feel is, the expectations, I just, I'm welcome if I act like a white person. And if I act like a white person, because, and if I'm, if I'm, and I'm, if I act like a white person and blend in like white people. And so particularly for those who come from cultures where there is a very strong community identity and a very strong sense of community bond and a strong deference to the community over the individual, 
If you come from that environment, there is no way that you're going to speak up in a group setting. There's no way that you're going to speak up unless you're invited in by the community to do so. Unless you're invited by the leader or unless you're invited by someone older than you, as a deference towards an elder, to acknowledge that. So the experience for some, particularly from cultures who have, have much more deeper communal relationships, is the experience is, why am I being excluded? Why am I not being welcomed in? Why am I not being invited? Why am I not being invited to, to share the way that I see other people have the freedom to share that I don't have? And so while it comes from a desire to say, I don't want to make it feel, treat people feel any differently, the message that is felt on the back side of that is, you're welcome to be here as long as you act like a white person. And the gospel calls us to something different. It calls us to have a new vision. How then do you engage someone who, according to the flesh, is different than you? I think you engage them the same way that you would want to be engaged yourself, or that you show genuine interest. You ask genuine questions. If it's apparent, according to the flesh, that they're of a different background than you are, you just say, how long have you been here? Uh, where are you from? Oh, you're from India. Southern Maryland's not like India at all, I imagine. You're right, it's not. Okay, well, how has your experience been? What things have you appreciated? What things have been difficult for you? And what has been shared with me is that most people who come from other cultures, instead of making them feel singled out, is that they would actually feel like somebody actually noticed them and someone actually cared for them. That they, that they weren't just expected to just blend in and act like white people. So how do you regard people if it's not according to the flesh? I think Paul gives us some specific instructions. In verse 14, he gives this characterization. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. What motivated Paul was God's worldwide mission. And God's worldwide mission acknowledging that each and every person in this world and universe is a person who has been created in the image of God. And because they are created in the image of God, they are endowed with inherent, inherent dignity and worthy of respect. And we are called not to regard them according to the flesh, but to regard them as people who are made in the image of God with unique characteristics, a unique heritage, a unique culture, a unique talents, and unique abilities. At the same time, a person who is made in the image of God a part of the world for which Christ died, also one who is not reconciled to God apart from Jesus Christ. One who needs the reconciling work of Jesus Christ in their life. And this is how, and, and seeing people then, not according to the flesh, but as, some, as someone that is worthy of respect and value because of the image of God, who needs to be reconciled to Jesus Christ, and who God has put me in their life to bring this about. That I would interact with everybody with a new vision. But for Christians, Paul calls us to something more in the way that we in the church are to interact with one another. Verse 17, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Therefore, he is about to tell you how you are to regard other people. 
This is not just a raw proposition, but is following on how you are to view your vision towards other people. We regard no one according to the flesh. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What this means is that you are called to view and treat other, create, other Christians as who they are in Christ, as new creations. That your vision, your view towards them is that they are a new creation. So this coming week, when you have a thought in the midst of the Thanksgiving challenges that go on, and there is a thought that goes through your mind of someone that is another Christian, and you're thinking, this person is such a self-centered, selfish person, which should go through your mind, loosely stating, which should go through your mind is that as that thought pops in, is that you then say, no, I am not going to regard this person according to the flesh. I'm going to regard this person as a new creation, as who they are in Jesus Christ, as someone who has created the image of God, who in Christ Jesus is a new creation, who has been given the beauty and the righteousness and the dignity of Jesus Christ, that that has been bestowed upon them, and I will see you, and I will treat you as the new creation that you are in Jesus Christ. I think if Christians did that in our families, that would have a profound impact on our relationships with one another, would it not? In Christ Jesus, you have a new vision. This new life leads to a new vision, and this is so important because in Christ, you have been given a new position. You have received a presidential appointment. Actually, something far greater. You have received an appointment from the king of the universe, and you have been appointed to an official position. Paul develops this idea through this passage. In verse 15, he begins to say, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised from the grave. The reason why Jesus died for you is not to help you fulfill the American dream. The reason why Jesus died for you is so that you would no longer live for yourselves, but for him, for Jesus Christ. How does that work out? Verse 18, he tells us further. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice the transition that occurs in this verse. Christ reconciled us to himself and has now given us the ministry of reconciliation. That those who are reconciled now become reconcilers. Those who were fish now become fishermen. Those who were recipients of God's grace now become dispensers of God's grace. Those who have been liberated now become the liberators. Those who have been hearers of God's grace now become the proclaimers of God's grace. Those who were enemies of God now become ambassadors for God. This is exactly what he says in verse 20. Therefore, after this transition has occurred, we are ambassadors for God, God making his appeal through us. If you have been reconciled, you now become a reconciler. You have now become appointed as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has appointed you to his worldwide mission as an ambassador of reconciliation. You know, an ambassador in a country, the American ambassador in another country, wherever the ambassador goes, 
they are a representative of the United States of America. Wherever they walk, they represent the U.S. When they go to the grocery store, they are the ambassador of the United States. When they are in their pajamas, they are in the, the ambassador of the United States. Everything that they do and every action that they take is a reflection on the United States for which they re represent. And in Christ Jesus, you have been appointed an ambassador of reconciliation. It is who you are with the new life that has been purchased for you, with the new vision and the new appointment as an ambassador of reconciliation. Now let me be perfectly clear what Paul is teaching here in 2 Corinthians. Racial reconciliation in and of itself is not the goal. Yes, we should promote the common good as Christians, and the scripture calls us to. But the goal is not racial reconciliation in and of itself. Rather, the goal is the worldwide reconciliation of people to God. People of every tongue and tribe and race reconciled together into one family, into one household, the Apostle Peter says, into one new race, that, the, that Christians are a new race, they are a new ethnic group, is what Peter says. That God is this, the worldwide rec reconciliation of God to people of every tongue, tribe, race, reconciled into one family, one household, one nation, where there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And Paul's admonition to the church in Rome, which was dealing with racial conflict and racial discrimination, and to the church in Corinth, which also was dealing with racial conflict and racial discrimination, and Paul's counsel to the church in Galatia, which was also dealing with racial conflict and racial discrimination, let alone other writers of the New Testament, Paul's admonition to all these churches show that you cannot proclaim the reconciliation of the gospel while refusing to reconcile with other races. You cannot proclaim the reconciliation of the gospel while refusing to reconcile with other races. Being an ambassador requires you to understand your own culture and the culture to which God has called you. And an ambassador of reconciliation requires one to be a person who pursues after people who need to be reconciled to God. People, as scripture says, of every tongue, tribe, race, and nation joined together in one household. In Christ Jesus, you have been appointed to a new position as an ambassador of reconciliation. This morning we are wrapping up this series. And you may be wondering, well, where are we going? And as we've entered into this, this series was not the end of the conversation, but rather a beginning. As a church, we will always and continually be in conversation about how we can remove obstacles, how we as a church need to and can change so that the peoples of Southern Maryland can be reconciled to God and that the peoples of this world can be reconciled to God through the unchanging message of the hope of Jesus Christ. As a church, we believe and practice that we as a body do not exist for the benefit of ourselves, but for the benefit of those that are not a part of our church. For the last couple of weeks, as I mentioned, it has been very interesting 
working through this series, I've learned many things. I've learned many things about the peoples of our church. I've learned many things about this topic and the outworking of this topic in your lives. And so, as I mentioned, this is a beginning of the conversation to continue. A couple of things that are going to be happening after the holidays. Um, we are going to have a diversity discussion panel so that we, as a church, would better understand how to better love and serve our brothers and sisters who are new creations in Christ. In our worship services, particularly when I'm praying, we're going to do, be, be praying intentionally for the culture's that our church is connected to and are represented within our church body. Continue to focus on the existing ministries and relationships that we have, such as through our ABCD ministry, work life, our neighborly relationship with the San Susi neighborhood, Friday night basketball. But more, my desire, is that more than starting some new initiative or getting involved in some new program, what my hope and desire has been and continues to be is that God's Spirit would open up your eyes and my eyes to be intentional where God has you. To be intentional in the relationships that God has already put you in, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, and on your sports teams. And that you would intentionally pursue those relationships to show the love and grace of Christ. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, if you haven't done so, I'd urge you to do so. That if you do not have at least one close friend of a different ethnicity, that you would pray to God that he would give you one, and more than one. And that he would do so not for their sake, but for your sake. For your own spiritual growth. For your own walk with the Lord. That you would be enriched and that you would know Jesus more deeply. And that you would be more effective in sharing the love of Christ. We live in a world that is crying out for reconciliation. We live in a world that is in desperate need of reconciliation. And the only hope of true reconciliation comes through Jesus Christ. And in Christ Jesus, you have been given new life, a new vision, a new position, being appointed as an ambassador of reconciliation. And so the task is before you. May you fulfill your appointment. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you that you did not stay far off. You did not sit in heaven and say, well, I'll make a way. If they want to come here, they can figure it out. Lord, but you left the throne and the riches of heaven to enter into the brokenness and darkness and racism and hurt and sin of this world. And not only did you enter in, but you did something more remarkable. Is that you became sin, even though you never sinned. So that we would not only have the opportunity for our sins to be forgiven, but that we might actually become, unfathomably, that we might actually become the righteousness of God that we would no longer be enemies, but much more so that we would be adopted into your family, into one household where there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, joined together in one family as a new race who bears the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we do long for the day 
when people of every tongue, tribe, race, and nation class will gather around your throne and worship you in unhindered praise. Lord, we do pray that you would make our worship and our church a foretaste of heaven. Lord, that you would use us to be ambassadors of reconciliation so that people who do not know you would find their hope in you and that the reconciliation that we proclaim would would be practiced in the relationships in which we live. Father, we pray all this through the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior and Reconciler. Amen.